It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back. This week, I speak with the Reverend Donna Scopper. Donna is the pastor of the Judson Memorial Church in New York City in Greenwich Village. Judson Memorial is a American Baptist United Church of Christ Federated Church. She's been there for longer than 10 years and recently celebrated the 40th anniversary of her ordination. One of the things that I love about Donna and her preaching is that she's out there. Um, when you look on the Judson website, for instance, you'll see the list of sermon titles, and these include recent sermon titles of hers include A Theology of Marijuana, Don't Call a Rescue Dog a Rescue Dog, It Hurts Their Feelings, and Missionary Positions. So there's these wild sermon titles, and I was wondering kind of where that wildness comes from, where that freedom comes from. Donna is a witty and incisive preacher. She's smart and carries a great deal of wisdom into the pulpit, but also uh, into her conversations. So this is going to be a fun conversation, I guarantee it. As I said, she preaches in New York City. I would love to find a rural preacher to speak with. So if you know of an exciting country preacher out there who'd like to be interviewed, please email me, preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, here's a conversation with... Donna Scopper. Donna, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. Thank you. I'm very glad that you're here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. The people at Judson, it's a unique church, right? Yeah, we're, uh, every church is unique. That's true. Every church is unique. Can you tell us about, about your congregation, its gifts and its challenges, what makes in, it unique? In New York City, in Greenwich Village, um, of course, it used to be the land of the Bohemian. And now it's been rapidly gentrified by NYU, which is too big not to fail, and has basically gentrified the neighborhood. So starving artists have all moved to Brooklyn. So our neighborhood is gone. And what we have instead is we're a campus church. Uh, so it's, but the legacy of Bohemian is so strong at Judson that you almost, it kind of, it, if the place gets too cleaned up, people get, Upset. I literally had a congregant tell me about five years in that she did not like the new bathrooms because they weren't as grungy as the old bathrooms. And, you know, she's a 72-year-old old hippie. Uh, and she didn't, she didn't feel good about all that clean. But if we weren't clean, all these gentrified families wouldn't walk in the door. So are you finding an ability to, to hold on to that historic identity while... Mm -hmm. Reaching the pe the new people in the neighborhood? Yes. Or the people are. of the new neighborhood, right? We are, and the reason we can is that we're light about it. Okay. And we play with it. So the sign on our Sunday school, our rapidly growing Sunday school, uh, is uh, beware, enter with care, Judson Sunday School. <laughs> so it's just, um, so we play with the Bohemian identity. Okay. And frankly, a lot of uh, up-and-coming uh, gentrifiers want to be a part of that history of the village, too. Because they know Greenwich Village and sure. it's, it's iconic status. It's yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Churches can really be incubators 
of a community's past history. Exactly. And so if that past history is appealing to people, Mm -hmm. they can probably get it at Judson more readily than they can at a coffee shop that's changed identity seven times. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think churches provide identity to communities uh, the better we know ourselves. Have you found since the neighborhood has been gentrifying, like my sense of listening to your sermons and knowing you a little bit is you're a pretty left-leaning person politically. Mm-hmm. I would assume your congregation echoes that, mirrors that, is in step with that at some level. As the neighborhood has become more wealthy, has that identity of the congregation shifted? Is it getting more conservative with its wealth? Not really. Uh, the, uh, I would say we're becoming more thoughtful and less, um, what's the right word, yeah, sort of automatic in, well, we're for Palestine instead of Israel. That would not be the case. Mm. Uh, and we're becoming more thoughtful because I think, like any good artistic-leaning congregation, we're self-critical. And we are very deep in the throes of grief about the lost American left or the power of the American left, particularly the religious left. And so I would say that we are very much seekers for new ways. So you won't get away with just saying something um, automatic or cliched at Judson. So my biggest issue at Judson has been that they think I'm too conservative. Mm. And that, of course, has never happened to me before uh, because I am left-leaning, although I I don't even know what that means quite because I can also be very um, conservative and... Um, traditional in the way I live. Um, so, but my congregations in the past, before Judson, always found me, uh, please don't preach any more political sermons, Donna. And mm-hmm. I would say, that wasn't political to say that Jesus is for justice or that Jesus wants people to have food. That is not political. And find that whole political, keep politics out of religion, dynamic, so insulting to Almighty God, yeah. as though God was not in charge of everything, including the way we self-govern. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just don't buy that. I think that dichotomy is, is a charade. So at Judson, I preach more about theology and spirituality and God than about the New York Times. And I think they are used to leading from the New York Times, and I'm not. Is that have you tailored your style because you look at the congregation and you think they already have? They've already read the New York Times. They are already primed in that area. So I need to help them go deeper spiritually, theologically, as opposed to perhaps other churches you've served where the inverse might have been true. Or is that has that always been your approach? It's always my approach, and it's not a decision. Uh, I really, I think preaching comes out of pastoring. Mm. And uh, I did my master's thesis on uh, Eric Erickson, who wrote biographies of famous people, Gandhi, Luther. And he argues in this psychosocial biography, uh, the way he does them, is that whatever the main conflict of the person is, that's what makes them great. It's the, it's the constant struggle with that conflict that makes make Gandhi great and identifies his struggle. So I think that my preaching comes from 
getting as close to you as you'll let me get and finding out what your human struggle is and where your who your God is or isn't. And then my best sermons come out of preaching them to you. To that. To that. To that conflict. To that tension in you or the rest of the... And it won't just be one, although sometimes I will pick one person. Mm. Uh, this week, I had a woman who's been married for 30 years, empty nest, fourth child, went to college, discovered that her husband was uh, had spent $1,600 in a strip club. Mm. And, of course, they weren't having... They were having the kind of sex that people who've been together for a long time have, but it was kind of boring for her and for him. And it's like, oh my gosh, how do you make something new? And this would, I wouldn't talk about it as marital therapy or sex fun, or we're a very sex positive congregation, uh, theologically and culturally. So is the village. Uh, but I would talk about it as, oh my God, I've got to change. And how am I going to find the strength to change, especially when I feel betrayed because I'm embarrassed that I let things go this long. I'm embarrassed that I contributed to my own <laughs> difficulty. I really do love my husband. And why did he lie to me about this? Because when she first uh, confronted him, he said, oh, that, no. Yeah. Is he in the congregation also? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you take a particular incident, right, and then look to the sort of broader application of uh -huh. it. That's really fascinating. When you've done that, do the people whom you're like the, the yeah, individual yeah. that you're preaching toward do they get it? They usually do. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the comment I get the most: "Is why were you preaching right to me?" Mm. And I usually say, "Because I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to." Yeah. And simultaneously, whatever conflicts I have, I mean, I've done reviews of my sermons at different points, or they've been collected in little books or something. Um, I will find that whatever I was going through, just, just straight out there, plop in the middle of the sermon. And Are you I conscious of it? Know it. Okay. No. Yeah. It's, a, it's embarrassing at a certain point. There's a weird way in which we think we're being objective. Right. And that it's not an exercise in uh, journalism, right. journaling, solipsism, and then you you look back and, yeah. Thank God for my husband, because he listens to all the sermons or reads them, and is usually present, and he'll say, oh, uh-huh. So does he worship, so your husband is Jewish. Yep. Is he, is he observant? Yes. But he worships at Judson also? Yes. Okay. As a form of support to me. That's oh, great. It's very... It's such a support because he's really the only honest observer. Uh, Carl Jung has this great quote uh, that we smuggle our biography into everything. And I do think that's happening in preaching. And one of the main reasons for clergy to stay as well as we can is that if we're in a trust famine or a time famine, or respect famine, or appreciation deficit disorder, I call it. That preaching at that tension without gospel added can be really bad. Bad in what sense? People people get it. They see right through they that. They see it right through it. Yeah. She's talking about her disappointments. Mm. So 
War, your Warren's role. You said he's he's your only honest. What did what did you say? Your your most he's honest witness. He's going to say to me, "Oh, Dom, you know you tried, mm. but you missed." Mm. Afterward, <laughs> yeah, not before. Yeah, and I'll just be oh, because oh, oh. usually yeah. by then I know it too. Mm-hmm. You know it. Oh yeah, um, yeah. You feel it, don't you? Yeah, it's like get me out of here. Yeah. This isn't working. Yeah, oh, this is dumb. Yeah, I just had it happen last, <laughs> just this last Sunday, and one of the. The great mysteries to me about preaching is, and it's an old, it was a hackneyed observation, but it re, it's rare to preach a good sermon without preparing. Unfortunately, it's not rare to preach a bad sermon that has a lot of preparation. Amen. That's so true. And it's, and I, I never know. I mean, sometimes I feel pretty confident mm-hmm. stepping in about what I've got to, right. to speak, but sometimes I feel like, oh, this will go well. This is a good one. And then, Five minutes in, you just, there's nothing in the room. I know. When people shake your hand at the end of the sermon, they say, good, good sermon, Pastor, yeah. good sermon. What I've learned to say is, we'll see. Mm. We'll see. Yeah. Because if it doesn't change something, mm-hmm. or inspire something, or have the kind of result where you're more open, more capable spiritually of whatever it is you're looking at, then it really didn't work. Mm. It's just an experience. Uh, so and the experience can be good, but it's not all of that different from the experience of seeing anything that's impressive or momentarily moving a good movie that you've kind of forgotten about an hour later. William Willimon says that the true test of the sermon is Monday. Well, I think, the same thing, I think right? that's right. Yeah. So are you preaching... One of the, one of the themes that, that I thought I identified in, in, in your sermons is a really beautiful way of allowing people to see themselves or encouraging people to see themselves as reconciled, as mm-hmm. beloved, as whole people. Um, and would your hope then be that out of that recognition, right, one is going to live a sanctified life? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, who's the Lutheran preacher uh, that out of Denver? I can't remember her name. But, oh, uh, sure. Uh, anyway, she's great. And she says people don't want to come to church to be told they have to do things better. Mm. I cannot abide moralistic. You're bad. Let's improve you. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I want people to feel is the overwhelming grace of God in such a way that they come out of themselves and do good, be good strive, connect, engage. Uh, so I just, uh, I hate the kind of progressive Christian preaching that is all shame, shame, blame, blame. It's the same thing that the punishmentalists do. Yeah. I mean, even the environmentalists now are, we are, uh, well, you're bad because you're not, because you're using a plastic bag at the grocery store. And you're bad because you're not driving a Prius. Which is like the right saying, you're bad if you're having uh, premarital sex. It's the same spiritual muscle and the shame blame. How do you get away from, in, in a context that is left-leaning, from that sort of dynamic of judgmentalism where, and you said this in one of your sermons, that you know the game is to be more radical than the person to your immediate left. Right. Okay. And, and the result then is, I'm... 
I'm better. I'm more moral, right? Oh, so more right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm now. Listen, you're not right about the strategy for uh, changing the federal budget. I'm right because you really have to do it this way. What do you think's driving our desire? I mean, is it just classic works righteousness? If I'm yeah. in a religious context, if if I'm mm-hmm. more more right on the question of Israel and Palestine, on the question of GLBTQ stuff, then somehow I'm closer to God. Do you you think that there's that dynamic at play? Yes, and I think that when people struggle for the right without humility, it's, it's wonderful to have a conversation where it's strategy. Should we do this or this? Uh which will be better in the long term. That's wonderful. When people start fighting with each other about, we have to do this, uh, and, and you're stupid if you don't do that, they're really showing that utter fragility of themselves. Mm. They have to be right, just because they don't have another light to stand on. If they're not right, then they're the not. The world is shattered. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I want to teach them that you can be, you're okay, and Coffin always said it, I'm not okay, and you're not okay, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I, want, I, I do want people to strive for good thinking and good strategy and good data, but it's not the end of the world if you get it wrong. And if your ideology isn't correct in, in a Christian understanding or in the understanding of grace that you're espousing, that's all right, because you're held by something much greater than you that loves you, right? You yes. don't have to earn that or deserve it because you can't of the, earn it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you try to earn it, you're going to ruin it. Um, uh, Richard Rohr says, uh, let me say it. Uh, the problem with the world is that we have desacralized it. Mm. So we need to resacralize what is desacralized. The problem is disenchantment, and so we re-enchant. I'm much more interested in those aesthetic polarities than corrected. Mm. See the difference between the world is all wrong, it's all messed up, we have to fix it, we have to correct it, we have to make it right. Uh, I would argue that to restore theological foundation is to be more open to revelation. Mm. Or the God who is still speaking. In the here and now. In the here and now. Rather than our doing the work to get our right. dogma correct. Because if we do that, we'll, we'll start, there'll be a wagging finger in it. You can bet on it. And other people will feel the wag of the finger and they'll, they'll just become more fragile yeah. and more scared. And that's not the point. One of the things I think is really interesting about, the, about this approach and about your faith and your theology is there is this beautiful assumption baked into it that um, things are right, that we've been accepted, and that, yeah, that's a very grace-filled approach. Did, is that something that you grew up on? You've been a pastor for 40 years. Yes. yes. Preacher for 40 years. What was your childhood experience of religion like? Did you grow up in the church? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. I'm drenched in it. (laughs) I grew up uh, in a Missouri Synod Lutheran family in New York. Um, in New York City or in? Upstate and downstate. Okay. Uh, we, were, we were in Queens and then we moved upstate. Uh-huh. 
And as German immigrants, we were very much in this ghetto. I called it Bach and Bible. <laughs> uh, so I went to Missouri Synod Lutheran Parochial School, where the first two hours were uh, memorizing the Bible and memorizing Luther's large and small catechism. So I had them memorized. And uh, I have been drenched in, watch, that's works righteousness. Now, it was grumpy the way they did it. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't happy grace, but it was warm. The warm fundamentalism mm -hmm. of an ethnic ghetto. So that Lutheran insistence on the preeminence of grace, you got that as a, as a child, right? Absolutely. And that you've carried that. I'm sure there's a lot about the Missouri Synod that you've left behind, but you've carried that Absolutely. right forward. Yeah. And I had, um, as I've discovered, that many people have difficult childhoods. Mm. I always thought it was just me. Right? Uh, but many, many, many people have difficult childhoods. And mine was um, poor, uh, involved domestic violence, you know, the works, the, mm. the usual pattern uh, yeah. of people who were uh, uneducated and uh, not likely to get educated. Um, so the pastor saved me over and over and over. Stern, you know, you stop beating her now, Donald, that's it. And he would for three days and then he'd go mm. back to her. So your childhood pastor was, I'm drawing a connection between that hard story and the story of the couple in your church. Absolutely. Your childhood pastor was interventionist. Interventionist. And you've... I felt, pro I felt protected by God. Mm. And I didn't know until much later, developmentally, that lots of people never got that protection. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I literally dedicated my life at age six to keeping little girls safe. Wow. And started baptizing my dolls and giving them communion and telling everybody I was going to be a pastor. And in the Missouri Synod. Right. In, I mean, when would this have been? In the 50s. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they all just patronized me, and I didn't even know it. Yes, dear. Mm. Of course, dear. And as I've told you, there was kind of an accident involved in my going to seminary. Because by then, I'd figured out that the Lutherans didn't ordain women. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that coincided with the 60s, activism, and then the 70s, feminism. And I said, oh, yes, they do. Mm. They're not going to ordain. It's just a question of time. Yeah. And I put on my battle gown and went to war. In the Missouri Synod? In or the LCA. In the LCA, okay. Um, so were you ordained in the LCA? No. No. I was the first woman, of one of three, who were ready the year before they voted it. Wow. Uh, and uh, somewhere in the world, there's a picture of we three on the... Um, front page of the Minneapolis uh, paper saying, we're ready. And the church voted no that year. It voted yes, the next synod. But by then I had jumped ship. Okay. I, I was, as you might imagine, broken hearted. Yeah. Because I believed in this church. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I really believed in it. 
that model that you had as a child of mm-hmm. the pastor as protector mm-hmm. and as, I mean, from what you just said, you didn't put it this bluntly, but you felt protected by God via the church's Absolutely. intervention and protection. Absolutely. Do you feel like you've self-consciously carried that same set of assumptions into your own work? I know I have. Yeah. See, I, sometimes I even worry about myself that I've never had a faith crisis. Mm. I'm, uh, I was just so blessed by the church and the Bible. And and by the way, Missouri City Lutheran Parochial School is, a real, is like Montessori. There are uh, 12 kids, grades 1 through 4, and then 12 grades 4 through 8 in a little building, and the organist teaches one sex section, and the school principal teaches the other. And I went to visit Mr. Everly and Mr. Ricker. So they were also, I had the same teachers. Mm. I got a brilliant education. Yeah. Uh, I just, I can't get over what a great education I got. Uh, small classroom, lots of attention. Um, you learned the Bible. And I learned the Bible. That's how I learned words. I was talking to a parishioner who was went to a Missouri Synod school. Mm-hmm all week long, but then went, was raised in the UCC. And he said that as a kid, it would, you know, that he, he was able to appreciate the irony as a young child of being in church on the weekend and having it feel like a break from the religious indoctrination <laughs> he was getting all week long at school. Right. Um, oh, gosh. But you, you, you have this, this capacity to look at, and I'm sure, again, I, I mean, it broke your heart. It bruised you, the, the rigidity and the sexism of that tradition. But you're very clearly able to say, here were these brilliant, bright moments yes. within that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I feel very, very blessed, even by the trouble I've known. I was able to say that the intolerance and rigidity were unbiblical. Mm. They weren't the real thing. Yeah, you could see that. Yeah. So you've been preaching for 40 years. Yeah. You remain and retain a real liveliness. Um, I mean, interpersonally, clearly, but also in the pulpit. Like, you bring that. Um, how have you retained your such spirit when you do this? It- uh, to the extent that I have. <laughs> that's There have been some... There are times when I'm better and times when I'm not. Mm. Not as good as I could be. Huh. You know, I just, I don't even know, but I do know that I change it up a lot. Uh, so I learned preaching from uh, a man named John Van Orsdal, who was my college chaplain at Gettysburg, you know, Lutheran, Lutheran, Lutheran. Uh, and he kind of adopted, I was good at getting people to adopt me. Uh, lots of mentors, lots of great mentors. Uh, it's one of the skills you learn in the kind of family I came from. So John uh, smoked a pipe, uh, bailed us out of jail all the time in the 60s, uh, married Bob Scopper and I, uh, and then hired me as his associate at Yale mm. when he went from Gettysburg to Yale. As a chaplain? Yeah. as a, He went to be Yale's chaplain, and then he got me to come to be associate chaplain. So I learned he was so rigorous about preaching. He was one of these 20-hour-a-week kind of people. I could always find him in his study on a Saturday night. Uh, 
smoking his pipe, sitting in his chair. Doing exegesis. Reading 19 books open. But the nugget that I got from John was that every sermon should follow the pivot of the scripture you're going to focus on. And of course, he was a, a three texts and a psalm mm-hmm. kind of guy. And he said that the pivot was in the psalm. Mm. And if you looked hard in the psalm, you would find it. Oh. So I would say the first 25 or 30 years, I was that kind of preacher. I was really uh, hardworking and scared. Mm. Uh, not to, I didn't, I really didn't care what the people thought. I have kind of enough wit to get them through it. Um, but I was afraid of disappointing John. Hmm. That he don't let John read that sermon. That that he would just because because I didn't find the pivot because I didn't have the, the form follow yeah. the, the function. So you had to follow his model. You I, internalized I, it. I had so he's still alive uh, in Cleveland, and, and we're very close. Uh, have you found at all that? That method, right, which starts to feel a little dated, like the way I was, I grew up hearing that kind of preaching, but the way I was taught to preach was, don't try to preach on three texts at once. You preach on one text. Um, have you made that same shift? I've totally made that shift. How is that, how does that, does that feel? I mean, the shifts are, I mean, I think we've all been making pretty much the same shifts. Uh, we use both an ancient testimony and a modern testimony mm-hmm. in our service. We have four uh, hymns, usually one is a Broadway tune or something very contemporary. So it, it, it's very much leaning towards the possibility that a poem or a, a paragraph, I mean, last Sunday, I, my modern text I chose, about, it was about a dowser in eastern Pennsylvania mm. and how she worked. Um, so, so you pair up some sort of contemporary piece of writing right. with scripture. Right. Okay. And then work both of them together. Mm. Uh, and I may only use one verse of, of whichever text I pick. So sometimes these days I don't even read all four texts. Yeah. I may just leave it. And I am always reading to the text. So I look forward to someday reading and not saying, I can use that. Yeah. Oh, I, that's useful. Yeah. Because um, I read to the sermon all week. Do you feel like you live to the sermon all week? I was, yes. I asked this question of, of Trey Hall, who's one of the people I've mm-hmm. spoken with, and I asked him, does it feel distracting from your own experience of life to be on the lookout for material all the time? And his response, because to me, I mean, it does to me sometimes. Like, I'm not authentically living my own life because I'm evaluating whether or not I can use this thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought his response was really interesting. He said, no, he feels like while he does that, it also it, it causes him to pay more attention in general, um, which causes him to enter his life more fully. I think they're probably both true, right? I think they're both true. Um, and for me, I'm still excited about the preaching task. And in certain ways, the reason I don't want to retire is I don't. I really like preaching. Mm. Uh, I like reading. I like writing. I like being driven to a subject. Um, 
And so the big change is briefer text, more modern text. And I always write it out. But lately, every other week, I just put it aside. Really? Yeah. And then preach extemporaneously once you're in the pulpit? Mm-hmm. Or even take the mic and walk around. Mm. So you have changed. So you've gone from, in your, well, more than just your early, for more than half of your preaching yeah. life, you were following the method that you learned from your mentors and that you learned in seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds like very exegetical, study-based, incorporating a lot of texts mm-hmm. to something now that looks quite different. Very different. Yeah. In fact, I'm surprised. In thinking about talking with you about this, I said to Warren, should I tell him what I really do? And he said, no, you shouldn't do that uh, at oh, all. Now you have to uh, tell me. Um, and what I really do is, um, I the best sermons I preach are pretty much written uh, by Friday, and I just keep popping things into the text. So on, by Monday morning, I'll say, September 20th, 2015, uh, Dowser, mm. um, migration. I mean, I would never preach a sermon with something like this migration issue going on and not mention it. Mm-hmm. That would make my people mad. Uh-huh. I may not resolve it. Yeah. In fact, I probably won't. I'll just say, and we're all people in the deep wander and hoping somebody will take us in mm-hmm. or give us a baby carriage along the way, you know. So your congregation is going to want to have those things sacralized, right? And exactly. Acknowledged at least. Right. Yeah. So the kind of trouble I can get in at Judson is why didn't you acknowledge mm-hmm. this? That's really interesting. We run into that here at St. Paul's. Mm-hmm. And... Um, my sometimes when we don't treat contemporary tragedy, the reason I feel like we don't is because what do we what can we do? You know? Right. We can try to like, you know, pretend that we're making a change. But I really like what you just said, which is you don't try to resolve it, but you don't ignore it either. Just kind right. of bring it before God, right? How does that what does that do for people, do you think? I think it validates their experience of sitting in front of the TV, watching horrible things, and feeling impotent. Mm. And uh, and recognition and validation are hugely important to people. Um, and in certain ways, that they they're the mini grace experience. Oh, somebody noticed. Yeah. You know but there's a validation. So that collective pain that our congregations feel about the migrant crisis, the church, my church, your church, mm-hmm. is not going to start the revolution, solve the problem. Mm-hmm. But by lifting that issue up mm-hmm. or those issues up, we're simply saying to people, yeah. we see God sees not only the, 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 the actual like lived pain that these people are in, but the pain of witnessing it too, right? So, That's really good. And so the, uh, what I feel has become a much more informal preparation that I'm doing. And I'm also, there's some conflict between my sermon writing and the other writing I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of other writing. Do you begin your other writing? Because you've written numerous books and you're working on one now, I know. Do those begin in the pulpit 
And then you think, oh, that that sermon could be expanded upon, or does the is there a, a logical flow there? Yes, the, it, all the so I you know I'm always writing a book. So last year I did two books: uh, prayers for people who think they can't and uh, approaching the end of life. Both of which came out of sermons and pastoral experience. And then I write for the National Catholic Reporter on new ways to think about the environment, because I preach about that a lot. So they're almost all sermons that go to blogs. And they mm-hmm. go back, they talk back and forth to each other. And I've got a new column in the Poughkeepsie Journal, which is my favorite, favorite writing. Because for years, I would take the jokes of sermons and turn them into newspaper columns in Amherst. Mm-hmm. And so we have a place 60 miles north of the city, and we go back and forth, up and down. So I call, I pitch this column to them called City Mouse, Country Mouse, and uh, from Aesop, and I just have a ball with it. It's all, it's all light. It's not sermon, uh, and it's not serious. It's yeah. just all. Let me tell you what happened at the yard sale yesterday. Uh, and how so st- anecdotal. Stoop and- sales, yard sales, and of course we do this still speaking writing. Yeah, and. So I, I, I call them shorts. I do shorts, mm-hmm. and then I do full, one full-length thing. And then the sermons kind of move back and forth. So there's this almost patchwork thing that I'm now doing. And truthfully, it might, I always wanted to be a nature writer or a travel writer or a humorist. That's what I wanted to be. Uh, and... If I thought I could make a living doing it, I would just go do it. Because I, in that kind of writing, I amuse myself. And I wish I had the spiritual freedom to be more amusing in the pulpit. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that that kind of writing, you're able to, and it it depends upon an ability to be a little self-indulgent in a way that the pulpit won't allow for it just won't yeah because it because the pulpit is more interactive i really there are those people there yeah and they are giving you 20 minutes yeah i I find that in this day and age it's amazing it's amazing i I think too in the pulpit i want to come back to that but but in the pulpit or in sermon preparation you are i mean obviously deferential right to that God you encountered when you were a six-year-old girl in a way that writing a, a, a funny column about the difference between stoop sales and yard sales right. you're accountable to the human experience yeah. right but um, yeah. yeah oh there's no in in well a sermon is trying to tell you something about God and you can never know enough about God as we were talking about yesterday loving God yeah. It's so much fun to discover more about, and, and to tell you, I was, uh, every summer I try to read somebody uh, as, as well as I can. And so this summer was Teilhard de Chardin. Oh my God. Oh, it, it, it's, he's amazing. And the encyclical, the Pope's encyclical, which of course I'm memorizing, literally memorizing. Uh, for this book, uh, the joke is the Pope Protestant. 
Chardin was thrown out of the Catholic Church, died alone in New York City in, I think, I want to say 53. The Pope is writing straight Chardin mm. uh, about a cosmic Christ, uh, a living earth, a Gaia sense of, uh, of nature. It's phenomenal. And to think that Chardin, that, you know, 60 years ago, they yeah. threw him out yeah. for that. It's very hopeful. It's amazing. The, um, so it's about learning more yeah. about God. Well, that's interesting, and that really answers the question I asked mm -hmm. um, 40 years in. How do you stay passionate in the pulpit? Mm -hmm. Well, 40 years in, you know there is still much, much more right. to discover about the God you love. Right. And... You get a little bored with whatever method, you, you know, so you have to shake it up. So I used to always uh, read the sermon. You know, I learned how to read it like that. Um, as if you weren't. As if I weren't. But it was always sitting right there. And the sentences were well-crafted. And I, I was proud of my craft. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just got bored with that. And also Judson taught me. There's so many um, theater people at Judson. It's a very theatrical place. And I just decided on a whim, almost, one Sunday when I had a very simple sermon, and I knew exactly what it was, to just put it down and speak it. And uh, very positive feedback. And I've been doing that a lot more. So we still put up the written thing on the web. I still write it, but I don't write it as carefully. I think it. Yeah. So the best sermon preparation for me is a long bike ride on Saturday night, mm -hmm. where I'm just inside my head is, this is point one. This is the, the switch to point two. This is how you recollect them. So it's a kind of mnemonic, uh, A, B, C, A, 1, Return to, and then at the end, you go back up through the whole thing. To, and, and close the circle. And close the circle. Do you feel, do you still have the text in front of you there? I still have it sitting in the, it's in, we don't use a pulpit, it's a lectern. So are you physically close to your congregation when you're preaching? Yes. I wonder sometimes if just the architecture of sanctuaries, you've seen the sanctuary here yes, at St. Paul's. Exactly. It's far away right. and high up. And there's a way in which you, I can get away with being very manuscript-based because you really couldn't tell one way or the other. That's exactly yeah. right. Donna, thank you so much for this conversation. <laughs> this is fun. It flew by. It's, it, isn't it? Um, I'm so glad you were able to be here. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.